0: My name is Dave Heinrichs. If we haven't met yet, I would love to meet with you. Just want to welcome all of you here this morning. And also, if you're joining us online, we're just grateful that you're joining us too. Uh, Today, we are starting a new series for the next four weeks in the book of Ruth. And some of you might be wondering, like, why did you choose the book of Ruth for us to work through? Well, I think this book is important for two reasons. First, the book of Ruth focuses its attention on God's activity in the lives of women. Specifically, Ruth and Naomi, who are wonderful models of faith for all of us. And I believe it answers a question that many people around the world, specifically many women around the world, have asked, is God good for women? You see, women have been on the margins of society for most of this world's existence. They have been devalued, dismissed, exploited, mistreated, and to our shame, this is also true of the church often. Women who have incredible abilities and great courage have been sidelined rather than encouraged to boldly step out in faith. And my hope is that by studying this book together, when it comes to the conclusion and the question, is God good for women, that we will all be able to cheer a resounding yes. The second reason the book of Ruth is important is that it prepares us for suffering. The kind of deep suffering That comes from a serious health problem, or an unexpected tragedy, or the sudden death of a loved one. We live in a culture of comfort that attempts to condition us to reject anything that causes pain and suffering, and to label that as bad and wrong. We try and shelter ourselves and those we love from experiencing any sort of rejection and the idea of denying ourselves something that would bring us happiness or pleasure seems barbaric in our society. But this idea that the good life can be had here and now and experienced without opposition, pain, or suffering, this flies in the face of what the Bible says is the path to true flourishing and peace. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Unfortunately, over the many years that I have pastored, I have seen far too many people who start out following Jesus with great enthusiasm only to face some difficulty and to quickly fall or walk away from him. Our faith is often not prepared to handle suffering. But in the book of Ruth, we learn from Naomi and Ruth how God uses suffering to open our eyes to see more of him than we would be able to see in happier circumstances. And that suffering is a sacred meeting place between God and his child where faith is fighting to survive even when God's goodness gets called into question. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn with me to Ruth chapter 1 where we will see how God is sovereign even in our suffering. Now, we're going to be doing something a little bit different than I normally do. Normally, I would start off the sermon, I would read the entire text. But this time, we're going to handle it in chunks and look at it that way. Beginning in verse 1, it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, they went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab to live there. So verse 1 sets the context for our story, saying that it took place in the days of the judges when they ruled, and there was a famine in the land. Now the period of the judges was the time between the death of Joshua, who commanded Israel's army in in the conquest of the Promised Land, and the coronation of King Saul, who eventually becomes the ruler over Israel. Now, the book of Judges is described as an era full of frightful social, political, and religious chaos. And the very last line in the book of Judges kind of sums it up well for us, saying, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Ironically, Bethlehem, where this family is from, the name of that village, it means house of bread. It says that there is a famine in the land, though, in verse 1. So there is no bread in the house. The cupboards are bare, and so Elimelech, Naomi, and the boys, they pack up and they head to Moab where there is food. But moving to Moab, that's a pretty extreme venture. See, Moab was historically Israel's enemy throughout their history. So seeking refuge in Moab is both shameful and dangerous. Only something as devastating as a famine would make Elimelech desperate enough To relocate his family to Moab. Another thing about the famine is it serves a second purpose. For the ancient Israelites, who are this story's original audience, the famine would have served as a reminder, bringing to mind how the patriarchs Abraham and Isaac also left their lands because of famines. And in both of those accounts, Yahweh uses a famine and the subsequent move to eventually bring about blessings for his people. And so the readers would have seen this famine and this move that would have brought those things to mind. And they would be wondering to themselves, what does God have in store for this family? Another feature of this book is the significance of names. The meaning of names, name changes, even the absence of names are all important in this book. Elimelech's name means my God is king or Yahweh is king. And with a name like this, the audience would be anticipating how God, who is the king of the universe, is going to display his supremacy for this family in their difficult circumstances and how he is sovereign over their suffering. Let's see how. Verse 3. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, the other Ruth, and after they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. This is not how the audience would expect this story to go. Where is God in all of this? Shouldn't God have protected them like he did with Abraham or preserved this family like he did with Isaac? And if Yahweh is king, as Elimelech's name declares, it doesn't seem like the king has a plan. Or if he does, it seems like it's gone off the rails. What's worse is that after Elimelech dies, Naomi had her hopes raised. Her sons married. We all know what marriage means. Grandchildren. At least, it does in ancient Jewish marriages. And grandchildren, specifically baby boys, would have meant that this family still had a future. Male offsprings not only preserved a family's name and estate, but in ancient Israel, male descendants They anchored their ancestors to their place in the nation and in history. Without a male heir, Elimelech's family hovers precariously on the brink of extinction. And in Israel, there is no greater tragedy than for a family just to cease to exist. But 10 years of marriage pass for Naomi's sons and daughter-in-laws, and there are no grandchildren to dote over. There is not one grandson to carry on the legacy. These couples would have started trying conceiving from the honeymoon night on. So it's apparent to the readers that both Ruth and Orpah are barren after 10 years of trying. Now, today, we know that infertility can happen to both men and women, and more often than not, it's us men who struggle in these areas. But in ancient cultures, infertility was always assumed to be the woman's fault. I mention this because this is important for us to keep in mind as we watch Ruth going forward. But at this point in the story, we're focused on Naomi. And it's bad enough that Naomi has lost her home, her community, and her husband. Then she suffers the disappointment of no grandkids, but no one should have to bury their children. And Naomi has to bury both of her sons. This seems like it's the end of the road for Naomi, and we are only five verses into this book. Here she is, elderly, widowed, living in a foreign land, mourning the loss of her children, and any hope for a future is dashed because a woman facing the predicament Naomi is in has no future. As a widow, Naomi lacks the provision and protection of a husband in a male-dominated society like the ancient Near East. If she were a younger woman, perhaps she would have the option of returning to her father's home for safety and security, but we can assume by her age, that her parents were already dead. Or she could remarry, but this is also improbable for Naomi because of her age. As we'll read in a couple verses, she is beyond childbearing years, so it's unlikely at this point that any man is going to take her for a wife. And she also doesn't have the means to support herself financially through some type of career. In general, women simply did not do that in those days, So as a widow with no sons to care for her, Naomi has no voice, no legal rights, and no recourse against injustice. Things for Naomi look hopeless. Seeing her situation raises this question, is God good for women? It may even have us asking the question, is he really king? Is he actually in control? All of this chaos may cause us to wonder, is God truly sovereign? Verse 6, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughter-in-laws prepared to return home from there. With her two daughter-in-laws, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, go back each of you to your mother's home Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. In this section, we see Naomi urging her daughter-in-laws to go back to Moab after they had already started the return journey to Bethlehem together. Now the reason Naomi does this is that she does not want her fate to become their fate. When her sons Malon and Kilian died, Orpah and Ruth were no long, they no longer had any social obligation to Naomi. They were free and they were young enough to return to their father's homes for security and the possibility of getting remarried. That they didn't return home right away but continued to live with Naomi and intended to go with her to Bethlehem where they would live as foreign barren widows without a future shows just how much they loved their mother-in-law. But Naomi loves them too much to inflict this upon them, and so she pleads with them to leave so that they might have hope a hope for the future. Now the part of Naomi's speech that may seem very strange to us is Naomi's hypothetical story about her getting a husband that very night and conceiving a couple of sons who might grow up and marry Orpah and Ruth And the basis for Naomi's line of thinking, it comes from Deuteronomy 25, where God institutes the law for Leverite marriage. There it says, If brothers are living together, and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. You see, by producing a male heir for a dead brother by his widow, the dead brother's legacy would continue to live on rather than being annihilated like what has happened with Elimelech. But beyond the weirdness and the ickiness that this ancient law causes many of us to feel, this was actually a very compassionate law. Aside from preserving the family line, this law was instituted so that women who had no rights, no protection or income, would not end up in the very situation that Naomi finds herself in here. This concept of Leverite marriage is an important one throughout this entire story. As the theme introduced to us in this section, uh, another theme that is introduced to us in this section that's important is the word that is translated by the NIV as kindness. In Hebrew, it's the word chesed. Naomi uses this word in verse 8 when she blesses her daughter-in-laws, praying that Yahweh would show them chesed, just as Orpah and Ruth had shown their dead husbands and her this kindness. And though chesed can mean kindness, it also implies loyalty, reliability, and compassion. I love how commentator Carolyn Custis James describes it saying, Hasid sums up the ideal lifestyle for God's people. It's the way God intended for human beings to live together from the beginning, the love your neighbor as yourself brand of living, an active, selfless, sacrificial caring for one another that goes, be, goes against the grain of our fallen human natures. Hasid is not driven by duty or legal obligation, but by bone-deep commitment loyal, selfless love that motivates the person to do voluntarily what no one has a right to expect or ask of them. They willingly pour themselves out for the good of someone else. It's the kind of love that we see most fully expressed in Jesus. Chesed is the gospel lived out. You see, according to Naomi, Orpa and Ruth did far more Then just show her some kindness. They sacrificed their own well-being in order to show love and loyalty to Naomi. And they were willing to go even further in showing her chesed by returning with her to Bethlehem. However, However much Naomi would have been comforted by having these two amazing daughter-in-laws return with her, she wouldn't dare repay their hased by allowing them to her fate to become theirs. And if a future of impoverished widowhood in a foreign land isn't enough to dissuade Orpah and Ruth from returning to Moab, then the very last line of Naomi's speech is intended to deliver. The knockout blow. She says to them, It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. The Lord's hand has turned against me. God is against me. What better argument is there to make for staying, for making staying in Moab attractive? If God is against Naomi, then Ruth and Orpah don't want to be anywhere near Naomi. Naomi's words reveal to us that she holds God responsible for all of the terrible events that have happened in her life so far. The famine, the death of her husband, the infertility of her daughter-in-laws, and the death of her sons. According to Naomi, Yahweh's hand is behind it all. Later in the chapter, Naomi, whose name means pleasant, will double down on her indictment against Yahweh. After arriving back in Bethlehem, it says in verse 19, the whole town was stirred, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. If uh, we're not able to keep the slides to the right one back there, can you just make it blank rather than leaving the wrong slide up there? Thanks. This idea of leverite marriage it makes us un- it makes us uncomfortable for some of us right but Naomi's accusations against God for many of us make it's absolutely disturbing we're happy to give God the credit when good things happen to us in our life you get that school scholarship hallelujah right get the job or successful surgery praise the lord But what do we say when bad things happen? We tend to say, that was bad luck, human error, or the devil did it. As if God isn't in complete control, or as if he is vulnerable to the whims of these other forces. What do you and I do with Naomi's accusations against God? And it's not just Naomi. For many Christians, when bad things happen to them, they ask hard questions. But sometimes, they come to wrong conclusions. In her 2014 Huffington Post article entitled, I was a hardcore Christian, but this is why I lost my faith. Jessie Gollum, who suffered a heartbreaking assault while visiting in Vancouver, she writes, the question where was God, kept on asking itself to me as I tried to process what had happened. God is supposed to love me and protect me and keep me from harm. This is what I'd been taught. But I reasoned two things to answer my question about where was God when I was in Vancouver. God either was present and there and did nothing about it, or God was not there and does not exist. It's easier for me to think that God does not exist than to think that God was present and did nothing. A God who is present and does nothing is not all-powerful and is not all-loving. And I simply cannot forgive a God who stands by and watches while people get hurt after he promised to protect people. If I had the power to stop something bad happening to someone I loved, I would do everything I could to stop it. Of all the times in my life that I needed God, God was not there. This is where I stopped believing in God. I would rather think that God simply does not exist than think that God abandoned me. You can hear the pain and the anger in what Jesse has written. What happened to her was horrible. And she says it causes her to come to this conclusion that God must not exist at all because she cannot see how a good God can still be sovereign while she suffers. But this is a major theme in the book of Ruth, and it's what theologians call providence. Providence. Providence is the Christian understanding of how God rules the universe. According to the Bible, God didn't just create the universe and step back and let it run on its own or leave it to chance or to natural causes or even our human desires. Rather, God has entered into a relationship with what he has been made and he continues to play an active part, governing it all. He is at work moving things so that everything eventually turns out according to his will. The Bible says that God has all power and all authority, and as Naomi suggests, he is ultimately, at the end of the day, responsible for everything, even our suffering. Lamentations 3 says, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Or in First Samuel 2, The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. So if God is sovereign over it all, good and bad, it does raise for us a couple of questions. First of all, does God create evil? Second, if God is sovereign over everything, do we still have free will? The book of Job helps us to answer the first question, does God author evil? The answer is no. God is good and he's holy. In Job, we read how Satan approaches God and seeks permission from Yahweh to harm Job. So it's Satan who is the author of evil and opposes God, who is the creator of all that is good. But to be clear, Satan is not equal to God. He has to get permission from God. Job, who suffered a lot like Naomi, also understands that everything, including his suffering, must pass through God's hand. He says in Job 1, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. He says in Job 2, Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? So even though God does not create evil, he ultimately takes responsibility for permitting it and ordaining all things. So what about our free will? If God is directing everything, do we actually have one? The Bible says yes, and it makes clear that humans are responsible for the decisions that we make, that God does not coerce our human will, and that we are morally responsible for our choices. My friend, Dr. Barton Preeb, he helped me to make sense of this. He said, to properly understand the doctrine of providence, It's like juggling three balls, and we have to uphold these three balls and cannot drop any of them. The first is that God is ordaining all events. The second is that he is not the author of evil. God is good and holy. And the third, we still have free will and we're morally accountable. He goes on to explain, holding all three of these together, it's called concurrence. Just as there can be many currents in a river that seemingly go in all different directions, ultimately, there is one river. And it's all heading in the same direction exactly where God wants it to go. There's one story in the Bible that has helped me to understand God's providence more than any other. It's the story of Joseph, who as a boy was sold into slavery by his brothers, but eventually ended up as a governor over Egypt. Who is responsible for Joseph's enslavement? Was it his brothers who sold them? Was it the slave traders who bought him? Or is it the devil who loves to enslave people? It's all three of them, isn't it? And yet, we look at this story at the end when Joseph confronts his brothers. At the end of Genesis, in Genesis 47, it says, he says to them, And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been a famine in the land, and for the next five years, there'll be no plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. Three times, Joseph credits God with his circumstances and sending them there. God did not cause the evil things that happened to Joseph. All of the characters in that account chose to act of their own free will, and yet Joseph sees how God orchestrated all of this in order to save lives and deliver people so that his will would be done. But here's the thing about this doctrine of providence. In the midst of suffering, it brings very little comfort to know that God has ordained it. We cannot dismiss the pain and the suffering that Jesse Gollum, who was assaulted in Vancouver, or Naomi, who lost everything in Moab, have endured. People who suffer like this, they need our compassion, and they also need time and space to grieve and to also be angry and even vent that anger towards God. It's okay. He can take it. But at this point, neither of them sees the full picture of God, of who he is. Jesse is unwilling to believe that an all-powerful and all-loving God would allow her to suffer, so he must not exist. Naomi believes that God is all-powerful, but does not see how he could be all-loving towards her. Again, Carolyn James says, From our perspective, especially when clouded by pain, We only see bits and pieces of what God is doing. And sometimes, like Naomi, we can't see anything that helps us make sense of what is going wrong in our lives. But the book of Ruth and the rest of the Bible not only tell us that God is sovereign, that he is in control of it all, it also teaches us that he is the author of chesed. God is kind he is loyal and reliable. He is compassionate. Yahweh is selfless, sacrificial, and active in caring for you and I. And his said it's not driven by duty or obligation, but by selfless love that motivated him to do voluntarily what no one had the right to expect or ask of God. He willingly poured himself out for our sake. Of course, I am speaking about God's said, expressed in Jesus and in his death on the cross. Jessie Gollum identified herself as a hardcore Christian. Before she wrote the words, I simply cannot forgive a God who stands by and watches while people get hurt after he promised to protect people. She says, if I had the power to stop something bad from happening to someone I loved, I would do everything I could to stop it. But even as my heart breaks for Jesse and what she experienced, I want to respond to her. Don't you remember the gospel, Jesse? You said you were a hardcore Christian. Don't you remember? God did not just stand by and watch someone he loved get hurt. He sent his one and only son to die. And though he had the power to stop Christ's crucifixion, he did not. Who is responsible for Jesus' death? Was it the Jewish mob and leaders who were jealous of him and handed him over? Was it Pilate or the Roman guards who crucified him? Was it you and I who sinned and rebelled against God? Wasn't it all of us? But the gospel says that God was the one who is ultimately responsible for Christ's death. God had his son, the son he loves, crucified, and he did not stop Jesus' death. He ordained it. In Acts 2, Peter says, Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. See, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it is our clearest picture of how the sovereignty of God and his has said, they always go hand in hand. If God can take the most evil event in all of history, the crucifixion of the Son, and use it for the salvation of the world because he loves us, can we not trust that he will also use our troubles and difficulty for his good purposes as well? In Romans 8, it says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God works for the good, his good, which also happens to be our good and the good of this world. And by the end of this book of Ruth, it will become obvious how God has not only works Naomi's suffering out for her good, but he actually works Naomi's suffering out for your good, and for my good. I love that verse from Romans that says, God works for good, all things out for good for those who love him. But that is not the verse that we should be quoting to people who are experiencing the agony of fresh pain and suffering. It's actually a better verse in Romans 12, Paul offers us. He says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and mourn with those who mourn. You know what this sounds like to me? It sounds like loyalty. It sounds like chesed. Sticking with someone through thick and thin. And this is just what Ruth does for Naomi. Verse 14, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. Ruth is absolutely amazing. Not only is this one of the greatest examples of chesed in the entire scriptures, but I believe that that Ruth shows incredible faith in Yahweh here at this moment. Not only believing that God is sovereign in suffering, and let's not forget, Ruth is suffering too. She's lost a husband. She thinks she has no that she can't have children. She's just lost a beloved sister-in-law who returned to Moab. But unlike Naomi, Ruth has not allowed her pain to cause her to doubt God's goodness. Ruth throws her lot in with Naomi here, but also with Yahweh, ultimately putting her future in his hands when she says, May the Lord, Yahweh, deal with me be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Some commentators believe that it's in this moment on the road to Bethlehem where Ruth converts and becomes a follower of Yahweh. When she says, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. But I kind of think that she probably came to faith in Yahweh much earlier than that. She's been a part of Naomi's Yahweh-believing family for at least 10 years, and who's to say that she hadn't converted to the faith prior to, coming, be, to being married? The text is silent on this. I think, though, that her declaration here is an outward sign of an already inward faith. And I believe it's Ruth's faith in God's sovereignty and goodness that propels her to such a courageous and selfless act of hesed for Naomi. And in the following weeks, we are going to see just how seriously Ruth trusts Yahweh and just how bold and courageous that makes her. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Ruth's not the focus of chapter one, Naomi is, and Naomi can only see how the Lord's hand is against her. In verse 21, she says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Is that true? Is she empty? No. She's got Ruth, right? I know how grief can often blind us from the people and things that God used to display his kindness towards us. And though God is sovereign in Naomi's suffering, he is also the one who is responsible for providing her with Ruth. Again, Carolyn James says, When we dust for God's fingerprints, we more often than not come up with the prints of one of his image bearers. The, verse, the last verse of this chapter, 22, it ends with a bit of chronological information, just a bit of a cliffhanger here. It says, They returned from Moab, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. What a coincidence, right? They just happened to arrive home just in time for the barley harvest. I hope by now that we see that none of this is a coincidence, but rather This little note should leave us expecting more. More of God's providence, but also more of his chesed. At the beginning of this message, I said that the book of Ruth addresses two important issues. First, the question, is God good for women? At this point in the story, we might say, well, Dave, I don't know. I think the jury might still be out on that one. But I think the fact that there is an entire book that is devoted to the issues of widowhood, infertility, and the marginalization of women should tell us just how seriously God takes his daughters. And I don't want to give away any spoilers, and you're always encouraged to read further ahead in your Bibles. And if you do so, or join us in the coming weeks, you'll see how God's purposes for humanity are riding on the shoulders of these two women that the world has all but forgotten. The second issue the book addressed is preparing us for suffering. We see from Naomi's story that they that we are not in charge of the journey that we are on. But like Ruth, we can hold on to the belief that somehow God's good purposes are bound up in everything that has happened to us along the way, even our suffering, maybe especially in our suffering. That verse from Romans that I quoted earlier, that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purposes. It goes on in verse 29 to tell us what those purposes are, to be conformed into the image of his son. God uses all things to make us more like Jesus. Jesus. And it's especially in the crucible of suffering where you and I learn more about God and have the opportunity to become like Christ than at any other time in our lives. Paul says in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like Jesus in his death. It's in this place of suffering that we can become more like Christ. And it's also when those around us are suffering where we can best show God's Hesed to them. Christ's love, the kind of love that Ruth shows Naomi here, the kind that is desperately needed in our church and desperately needed in this world. Paul says in Galatians 6, Share each other's burdens, and in this way you obey the law of Christ. Ruth shows us that God's preferred method of getting things done in this world is to work through His daughters and His sons. We're not just sitting on the shores of God's providential river, just watching as the water goes by. Rather, you and I, it's like we're out on rafts in the middle of the water, right? And we are paddling. And though the water may get rough and we're riding the currents and sometimes white waters threaten to throw us overboard, we are still trying to go where God goes. Right? To trust that He is leading us onward to His good purposes. God fulfills His plans through our actions and through our efforts. You know, this morning... We get to take the Lord's Supper together, and it's a great reminder of how God loves us. It's a great reminder of his chesed for us, but it's also a reminder of how God uses suffering to bring about his good purposes for this world.